This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. We are starting the book of Habakkuk today, and I'm sure there's at least one person out there that is thinking, the book of what? Habakkuk is not one of those books that gets a great deal of press, not a lot of airtime for Habakkuk. Uh, It is a minor prophet, which means... It's located in the latter portion of the Old Testament, and I had meant to actually look up where in our house Bibles it is so that you could easily find it in the house Bible. Um, For those of you like me who are using an electronic Bible, just type in H-A-B and you'll get there. For those of you who aren't, um, most Bibles come with this really high-tech device called the Table of Contents that's usually located at the front. But the book of Habakkuk is where we are, and there's a very good reason why we're in Habakkuk, and we'll be in Habakkuk for the next three weeks. This is an incredibly long book, three chapters, and uh, so (laughs) we're going to take our time going through it. Um, So we're, uh, now, now let me give you a little bit of background. So the next question after, like, okay, what book is Habakkuk is, where does this fit in the timeline? I mean, we're pretty good with Jesus and his disciples. We kind of got that. Um, a lot of us are pretty good. Okay, we've got creation. We know that's somewhere near the beginning. Um, and and we've, got, you know, we've got the Noah thing. We've got the Moses thing. We've got King David. And after that, things get a little weird. A lot of folk aren't quite sure what's going on. So I'm going to give you a brief history lesson. So after King David, his son Solomon was king of Israel. But after Solomon passed away, the nation of Israel split into two different kingdoms. The tribes in the north kept the name Israel. So the nation of Israel, during the time we call the divided kingdom, in the north it was Israel, and in the south the kingdom was called Judah. And if you know all this already, just bear with me. There are some here who don't. Um, So the southern kingdom was called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem and the temple was. Well, for political reasons, the kings in the north weren't happy about their people traveling down into the kingdom of Judah and going to Jerusalem to go to the temple. So they decided their, their solution to this dilemma was to create a civic religion of their own. They established other temples and other shrines and other priests, even going so far as to create golden calves and say, look, Israel, the gods that led you out of Egypt. Doesn't this sound familiar? I mean, doesn't, do they not remember the whole Mount Sinai thing? Apparently not. But this began the downward spiral of apostasy in the northern kingdom of Israel. The stories of Elijah and Elisha, the great prophets, all take place in the divided kingdom of Israel in the north, where the people were living rebellious, and God was constantly using these prophets to try to bring the people back to himself. 
And even after amazing displays of power, for example, Elisha uh, confronting the prophets of Baal with the building of the two altars, and he tells the prophets of Baal, okay, or tells the people of Israel, today we're going to determine once and for all who, God, who is really God. And he tells the prophets of Baal to build their altar, to put some, a sacrifice on it, but to not light it on fire. And they were to call out to Baal, and he would do the same thing, make an altar to Yahweh, the one true living God, put an, a sacrifice on it, but not any fire. And he would call out to Yahweh. And whichever God answered and consumed the sacrifice, that would be the one God, and people were to worship that one God. And this sounded reasonable to the people of Israel. Well, the prophets of Baal did their thing, and they danced around, and they chanted, and they even cut themselves in their, in their ritual worship. Meanwhile, Elisha, excuse me, Elijah uh, kind of taunted them on, uh, shout louder, maybe he's on a trip, maybe he's using the bathroom. I mean, he actually said that, it's, that's in the Bible. Um, you know, it, he taunted them, and, and nothing happened. And then he, Elijah, rebuilds the altar to God, has them dig a trench around it, puts the wood on it, puts the, the sacrifice, and then pour water over the whole thing, because we all know that wet wood lights really well. I think Elijah was trying to make a point here. Pours water over it and keeps pouring water over it till the water is overflowing the trench they dug around the altar. And then he simply says, my paraphrase, God, show him who's boss. He didn't cry out. He didn't have a lengthy prayer. It was a rather short prayer. And it was a simple request to demonstrate his power to the people. And fire came down out of heaven and was so hot, the scriptures tell us it not only consumed the meat and the wood and the water, but the stone as well. Now, you don't have to be a scientist to know that fire's got to be pretty dang hot to consume stone. Well, that's the kind of stuff that was going on in that divided kingdom. But the people in the northern kingdom of Israel never really repented or turned back. And so God eventually sent the Assyrians and destroyed them. They ceased to exist as a people. But the southern kingdom of Judah continued on. You see, the southern kingdom of Judah, largely because it was the site of the temple, it had good times and it had bad times. It had good kings and it had bad kings. They'd fall away from God and begin worshiping the false gods over time. And then they'd have a revival and they'd come back to worshiping the one true living God. And this would go back and forth. Well, eventually... God sent the Babylonians to punish Judah as well. And that began the period of the exile. And that's where we get Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That happens during the exile. Well, the people of Judah are captives in the land of Babylon. Habakkuk lives in Judah during one of these He's, he is lamenting the bad times. He lives in Judah not too far from when the Babylonians are about to come and, and take over. 
Habakkuk lives during the people of Israel had, excuse me, the people of Judah had experienced a bit of a revival, but things are starting to fall away. People are becoming complacent. They're going back to their old ways of doing things. Bad stuff is happening. And he is lamenting. He is lamenting that it seems like God is just allowing all this bad stuff to happen. The people of God are not following him. They're taking advantage of each other. Evil and corruption seem to be the name of the game during that time. And he is lamenting, God, why aren't you doing anything? And God's answer that we heard Stephen read, and I'll read it again in just a second here. God's answer is, don't worry about it. I've got this. I'm going to send even worse people in to punish you. Now, next week, Stephen gets to preach, what? (laughs) This week, my sermon is, in the midst of evil times, God has a plan. Next week, week, uh, Stephen gets to talk about, well, what if we don't like God's plan? That's that's for then. And and then even past that, we've got, you know, some other stuff going on. you know, here's a hint. I've, I've read to the end of the book, God Wins. Um, and where I'm going to be going today is helping us see that God's plan and our plan, they're very seldom the same thing. Very seldom. Most of you have a couple of years on me. And even in my lifetime, Very few of my plans have gone the way I expected them to go. Off the top of my head, I can't remember a single plan that's gone the way I expected it to go. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. We look around at our country today. We look around at the world, and bad stuff is happening. I mean, of course, we've got covid which is you know, attested to by, by all of the, the bandits I see out in, in, in the congregation this morning. Um, when this whole thing hit, a, um, one of the guys that I knew from the rescue mission, when I, when I ran the rescue mission, and it was a recovery program, most of the guys in there, many of the guys in there have, have police records, and he took a picture of himself with a mask on standing outside the bank, saying, I'm getting ready to go and do some banking. I got arrested for this 10 years ago. <laughs> Um, isn't it a funny world that we live in? And I don't mean ha-ha funny, but strange. We have civil unrest, race issues. I have friends on all sides of this, this political spectrum and all calling for justice. And the problem is that each of them means something completely different when they use that word. There is no agreement. There is no clear path. When when we call out for justice, what we really mean is for me and mine, we want grace and mercy, but for them, we want revenge. We want vengeance. We have to be very careful. I lament. I have to be very, very cautious about my news intake because I just get angry. Angry at everybody because everybody's wrong. 
How many of you remember the 2005 song, Jesus Take the Wheel? You know, I mean, doesn't he just need to take the wheel? I don't think many of us would be lamenting if my sermon were interrupted with the trump sounding and Christ returning right this second. Because we need it. We need something different. Our souls, do not, our souls cry out for something better, don't they? Habakkuk speaks into our time and into our problems. So let's pause and pray for a minute, and then I will read once again Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Father in heaven, you are our only source of hope. You are our only rock. You are the only thing stable in the universe. You Hold the very universe together. The laws of physics are what they are because you not only established them, but maintain them. God Almighty, we come before you, many of us befuddled and confused and irritated. We're worried as we see what is going on around us. Father in heaven, Speak to us this morning and teach us. In your name, amen. So Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold... I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Not one of the most cheerful passages, but very important for us to take a look at. You see, God's timing is not always, I would even go so far as to say very seldom, our timing. God's ways are not our ways. He is so far above us. Let's take a look at some other passages in Scripture. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the fall. Sin has entered the world. 
And in, when God is speaking to the serpent and to the woman and to the man, he says in verse 15, as he is speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first of the messianic prophecies. God has promised right here at the very beginning of the end of everything, the very beginning, things have just taken a turn for the worse. Sin and death have entered into God's very good creation. And God promises that one day there will come one who will set it all right. Why didn't God just do it right then? I mean, wouldn't everything be better? We might think so. But we don't see his view. We lack his view of the big picture. We don't understand. And it was thousands of years after he spoke this that Jesus finally came. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose again and promised he would return. And still we wait, eagerly, sometimes impatiently. God's timing is not our timing. And many people much smarter than myself have spoken about God's timing and what he is waiting for and why it seems like he tarries. Scripture tells us that he's waiting for all those who are called to come to him. I think it's one of the, one of the reasons that even as a little child, I was so interested in mission work is because I want to do everything I possibly could to bring about a quicker return of Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if, if he's waiting for people to, to, to fall on their knees and, and proclaim him Lord, then by all means, let me hasten this along. Anything I can do. Well, let's look a little bit further in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Now, God has called Abram to leave his area, to leave his homeland, and in God's own words, to go to a place I will show you. And so, Abram is way over here in Mesopotamia. you got the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and they head down into what we call the Persian Gulf, and he's down there, and he starts heading north, and then eventually God says, hang a left. And so he hangs a left, and he starts heading this direction. And then eventually God says, okay, hang another left, and he starts heading south, and you got the Mediterranean Sea, and he's heading south. And then God says, well, I'll read it right here. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. I'm in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, doesn't that sound awesome? Go to a place I will show you, and I'm going to make you a mighty nation that's going to bless the entire world. We can all get behind those kinds of promises, can't we, you know? 
So Abram went. And as the, Lord, uh, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now here's where we get to, okay, he's, just, he's hung a left, he's hung a left, heading south. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. He gets there, and what does God say? Your descendants are going to get the land. Keep moving. What? God's timing is very seldom our timing. God's plan is very seldom our plan. So Abram built an altar and he kept moving. I mean, what else is he going to do? God called him to go to a place. When he gets there, God says, this will be the place. And to keep moving. Well, let's go forward a couple more chapters. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This, gets, this keeps getting better, doesn't it? Here's the land. Your descendants are going to have it. Keep moving. Two chapters later, by the way, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. What? Can you just, can, when I read this, I can see Abram's face and just this, I don't understand. I really don't understand. God tells Abram his descendants will be afflicted for 400 years, and then they will get the promised land. That doesn't seem good to us. But we don't see the big picture. There are reasons why Abram couldn't settle in the land at that time. When you read the whole passage, among other things, you find out that God says the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the people yet aren't as bad as they need to be for you to come in and cleanse the land. Secondly, you're not strong enough to hold the land. It was still needed that God, uh, that God take a family and form them into a people, a culture, a nation. When they go, fast-forwarding again in Genesis, when they go into Egypt, so Joseph is there ahead of time, and then the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine, and then Pharaoh says, we'll bring your whole family down. So Jacob comes down, and the people of Israel settle there in Egypt. They're an extended family, but nothing more. It's just an extended family, a, a clan of people. And in 400 years, they grow. And God provides training in civics, 
organization, and they leave a nation. Over a million people strong. God gives them a set of laws that govern their society. Moses enacts a plan to govern the people. He listens to some wise advice from his father-in-law. And he comes up with a plan to govern the people in tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. Kind of creating cities and counties, you know, kind of, I mean, for a mobile people. God sees the big picture and we don't. Habakkuk is looking around and he sees that his people, the kingdom of Judah, well, first of all, the kingdom of Israel has been divided, it's been shattered. The the nation of Israel in the north has been wiped out. The remnant, Judah in the south, has continued on because it wasn't quite as bad and it's waffled this way and that way and it served God and then served the, the pagan false gods. And it's now in a time, and he's looking around saying, things are just horrible, God. Why do you allow this? That classic question, why does God allow evil? It's a hard question to answer. And God responds, I know what I'm doing. I am going to do something that you wouldn't believe even if I told you what it was I'm about to do. And he only gives him a little hint. He's going to send in the Chaldeans, or Chaldeans, depending on how you want to pronounce that C-H. And I'm sure that confused Habakkuk as well, because that's even worse than the people I'm just complaining about. But we have an advantage on Habakkuk. We can take a look at history and see what happened. What happened because God sent in the Chaldeans, and the people were captured and sent into exile. You know, after the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people never again fell to worshiping false gods. They finally managed to get that out of their system. By the time we get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees have a bad reputation because they got too legalistic, but they were birthed out of a genuine desire to worship the one true living God. They arose during that 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. They were born out of a genuine desire to get back to worshiping the one true living God. They helped lead revival after revival of God's people focusing on God alone. That's great. Another thing, another benefit of that Babylonian Babylonian captivity is the work that God was able to do in Babylon. One of the side effects of all of that, we read about in the Gospels, when wise men from the east saw a star and remembered the messianic prophecies and headed to Jerusalem. That's amazing. 
God is playing a much deeper game than you and I could possibly imagine. God's plans are so much greater than we can understand. My last example of this and how things that we don't understand and are horrible might actually serve for our benefit is found in all four of the Gospels. Feel free to jot these passages down. Matthew chapters 26 through 28. Mark chapters 14 to 16. Luke chapters 22 to 24. And John chapters 18 to 21. If you haven't cottoned on to it yet, that's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Jesus is in the garden And we know from his prayer that even Jesus wasn't thrilled about this plan. Please, Father, if there is any way for this cup, let this cup pass from me. Even Jesus is saying, Father, if there's a plan B, I'd really like to hear it. He knew from the beginning that that's where he was heading, but he is facing that agonizing moment now. He knows that tomorrow he is going to be tortured to death. And I don't mean the nails and the cross. I mean bearing the sin of every person throughout time on himself at one moment. That's what killed Jesus, not the nails. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine every sin We know the wages of sin is death. That's not the wages of big sins. Every sin, the price of this is death. And every sin of every human throughout history from Genesis chapter 1 till Revelation at the end where it says amen is on Jesus at one moment. Pilate was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did. The amount of death. How many of you, confession here, as a kid, took the magnifying glass and got the little sunlight through the magnifying glass and took the sunlight through a little beam, and if you were twisted like me, roasted ants. If you weren't twisted, maybe you just burned a hole in a leaf. That laser beam focus of every sin of all of humanity on Jesus. Jesus is praying to the Father, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The greatest injustice in history, in the history of the universe, brought about the outpouring of grace and mercy on the undeserving, you and me. Talk about a plot twist. I mean, who could have seen this coming? Satan certainly didn't. Even with the foreshadowing and the prophecy given throughout the Old Testament, most of the people, the learned people whose lives were dedicated to studying Scripture, they missed it.
the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is by far the worst thing. I mean, think about the crucifixion of the the, the murder of the Son of God in human terms is the worst thing, the worst tragedy, the worst possible thing that could happen, that we could do, the worst injustice, the most evil, diabolical thing possible. It would seem to us, wouldn't it? But that was God's plan because what it brought about was our salvation. I don't know why our country and our world is going through all of this. I'm not that smart. What I do know is God is sovereign and he is still in control. And so what I need to do is place my hope in him. Not in a political party, not in a platform, not in a president, not in a movement, not in anything else, not in any other civic thing we've got going on. That is not my hope. My hope is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's where we need to place our hope. No human organization or individual is going to save us. Jesus already did. The problem is, we keep trying to figure it out on our own. And we keep placing our faith in human beings and in people and in organizations. Let us commit ourselves to God and to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, God, I want to thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Because I know that if you were focused only on justice, I would not be alive right now. The question is not how can you allow evil in the world, but if you're all good and all-knowing, why am I still alive? Because you know what I did yesterday, last week. And if the wages of sin is death, I should have been hit by at least a dozen lightning bolts. So God, I want to thank you for your grace and mercy. I want to thank you that you are so much wiser than I am. I want to thank you that I cannot understand you. If you were a God I could understand, you wouldn't be worth worshiping. But you obviously are so far above me. Father, with everything that is going on in our world... Please help us to worship you, to hope in you. Please help us to focus on you and you alone, to not be sidetracked by everything else going on. Father, please. Father, please. 
Help us to see you. Help us to commit ourselves only to you. To your word where you have revealed yourself. To the study of your word. To worshiping you, not just by singing songs to you on Sunday morning, but in every aspect of our lives and everything that we do. When we're out about with our friends and our family and stuff comes up in conversation, please help us to point people to you. And you alone. You, Christ, are our solid rock. And if we attempt to stand on anything else, we will fail and we will be befuddled and we will be confused. Father, through your Holy Spirit, convict us of that. Make it real to us that we need to stand on you alone. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Thank you.